0: Gabby, do you want to take it from the top?
1: Yes, I do. Jennerose Nethercott is a writer and folklorist. Her first book, The Lumberjack Stout, was selected by Louise Gluck as a winner of the National Poetry Series. And whether authoring novels, poems, ballads, or even fold up paper cootie catches, her projects are all rooted in myth and what our stories reveal about who we are. She tours nationally and internationally, performing strange tales, sometimes with puppets in tow, and conducts research for the podcast Lore. She lives in the woodlands of Vermont beside an old cemetery. Thistlefoot is her debut novel.
0: Welcome! Thank you. Hello. Hello. Hi. It's so good to see you. Um, we met actually in person in the fall, and you had your whole case of puppet accessories.
2: And,
0: <laughs> and, one word for them <laughs> yes it was amazing and uh it was what was really special about that to me is I'd been given some advice um by an author about you need to start making connections you know and build like your author community and you were like the first person that I didn't know that I like was like brave enough to be like will you will you do it like <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it was lovely meeting you there. And it's always, yeah, it's always really fun to meet another writer while out and about and like dragging a crate of puppets
0: behind. When I was yeah. spending most
2: of my time with puppets, it's always great to make a human friend.
0: <laughs> I love that. And I saw like you, you post stuff on your social media and it cracks me up every time I see you going to a place and then you're showing your Baba Yaga puppet and her seat. <laughs>
2: Oh, yeah. I I found early on that like the best way to get an empty seat next to you on a bus or a train is to have a puppet in the seat and then no one will touch it with a 10 foot pole. (laughs) So (laughs) that's been my my little
0: trick. So is it um, because I actually would have thought it was a conversation piece, but is this actually something where if you did not want to speak to people, you would recommend doing it?
2: Oh, I think it depends on the context. I do. I will admit I've had to start like keeping her stowed away on airplanes because too many people talk to me and I'm like, I can't. Uh. (laughs) I'm not up for this. (laughs) I just can't do this right now. Yeah. And like on one train, uh, the train conductor made me pick up the Baba Yaga puppet and have her wave to everyone on the train. And I was like, this isn't going to work, man. Oh, that is awkward. (laughs) (laughs) oh but you did it i did it Uh, (laughs) you took
1: one for the team
2: yeah and there was one plane where there was like a crying baby right behind me and then i had the babiaga pop up in between the plane seats and she stopped crying and so that felt pretty cool that is so it's nice. a strange power to wield I have to- <laughs> I
1: was about to say that is that is some real storytelling power right there yes.
0: yes and as part of going to different bookstores I know you had a whole show that you would put on which is um I'm sure you also have Baba Yaga like just for fun but um there was as well like an additional purpose
2: yeah she is my lover and also <laughs> yeah <maybe> our colleagues <laughs> Um, Yeah, so my book, Thistlefoot, which you have read, Mm -hmm. is uh, it it features both sort of standalone folktales sprinkled throughout the story based on traditional Eastern European Slavic folklore and Jewish history, as well as uh, the book features puppets themselves. So when I found out the book was going to be published, I knew I wanted to go on a big tour because I love touring. And I knew I wanted to tour with puppets because it would just be fitting. So I ended up working with some really incredible collaborating artists, uh, Sandglass Theater, which is an amazing puppet theater out of Putney, Vermont, a small Jewish German puppet theater run by my friend Shoshana Bach us as well as an artist named Maria Pugnetti, who created these shadow cranky scrolls. I apologize to everyone for my voice. I have COVID right now in this very moment. And so that's what you're hearing. You're (laughs) doing great. I'm absolutely perishing. But um, anyway, yeah, so I worked with these artists and we essentially created puppet shows that animated the different standalone folktales that are sprinkled throughout the longer narrative of the novel. And so that's what I toy with. And that's what my Baba Yaga helps to animate. Oh,
1: it's so cool. <laughs> Connie told me about it and and I was like, oh my God. I had I wish that I could have been there to see it in real life because I couldn't picture how it would go. And she was like, Well, you missed out. So
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And then you even like did like the the smoke coming out of like the chimney. And it was just like everything was fantastic.
2: That is one of my favorite moments in the puppet show because I get to vape professionally. <laughs> so- there's this little tiny version of Baba Yaga's house on chicken legs. And in, in the old Slavic folktales, Baba Yaga, this witch crone figure, lives in this sentient house that is lofted up on chicken legs. And I, I have that featured in the novel. And uh, so part of the puppet show is I have this teeny tiny little version of the house on chicken legs. And yeah, like you said, the I, there's a moment where smoke comes out of the chimney of the little house. And the way that I do it is there's a little straw that like feeds. Through the puppet and into the chimney, and I have a jewel. And I just like suck on this jewel in the middle of a show in some poor, unsuspecting bookseller's presence, and then just like blow it through this roof. And everyone loses their mind. And I'm just so excited. Like, I haven't done my taxes yet for this year, but I cannot wait to write off jewel pods on my taxes. It's what I live for. That's
0: fantastic. I Ten out of ten. That's
2: why I wrote the book, you know, just so I could buy more
0: jewel packs. Just so you could uh, uh, yeah. write that off on your taxes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. support. Thank
1: you. <laughs> this is incredibly entertaining to me. I I hate taxes with a passion, and I'm yeah. just like, wow. If if I, if I was doing that, then maybe um it would be a bit more bearable. <laughs>
0: we talk I mean I know like everyone goes you know grumble grumble taxes but I feel like we talk about taxes like in an above average amount on your podcast oh no I I think this is the first time here but like just personally between us like Gabby's always like taxes (laughs) taxes <laughs> sorry it's uh... <laughs> actually surprised. this is a tax podcast <laughs> yeah we pivoted hard here look it's important to have personal
2: vendettas against yeah.
0: anything that your heart desires yes yes i love a good vendetta i love reading about a good vendetta too way to pivot back <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well done, Courtney. You did it. I've I've had experience. I've had experience. (laughs) So um, I did want to kind of, you know, just talk about, um, because a lot of your work is steeped in storytelling, myths, all of those things. Um, And, you know, when we met, we had this incredible conversation about monsters. And for you, then I'm just, you know, for another hot take, um, what are essential ingredients for making a monster?
2: So I... I'm obsessed with monsters, all monsters. Of course, I have my favorites, as we all do. But mm-hmm. I think what you and I were talking about, if I recall correctly, mm-hmm. in my COVID-addled haze, is uh, I'm really fascinated by this idea that in order to make a monster, it has to contain opposing forces. So there's this essay by Freud. Called The Uncanny Which, you know, we take Freud with a grain of salt But this essay is really interesting And in it he talks about the difference between fantasy and horror Where he says a fantasy story Is when a fantastical, impossible thing Occurs within a fantastical world So, for example, a dragon story That's fantasy because dragons belong in the world In which they are being written into However, horror is when a fantastical thing happens in our world. So, Mm. you know, Godzilla, for example, is not considered a dragon, but is considered a monster of some kind because Godzilla is in our world, not in a world where Godzilla belongs. And so according to this theory of Freud's fear or the sense of the uncanny comes not from our relationship to a thing itself, but basically, or it, it comes not from a thing itself in isolation but rather it comes from a juxtaposition, a chafing between one thing and another thing that do not belong next to each other. Mm. So uh, Theodora Goss has a an essay that extends this notion in which she talks about monsters containing in their bodies two opposing forces that makes them scary or makes them uncanny. So for example, vampires are both living and dead. Werewolves are both animal and human ghosts exist in our time, but also in the past, as well as the living and the dead, as well as corporeal, but incorporeal. And so any monster you look at, you're going to see this really intense, uncomfortable chafing going on. And that is where our sense of like something not being right comes from. And I think this is also why in history so many people with disabilities were relegated to uh, the label of monstrosity put into sideshows etc is because there was some sort of societal idea of what people thought a person was supposed to look like or how a person was supposed to present and so when someone came along that challenged that notion our brains would have read it as a chafing and then wanted to label that as monstrous, which I think is really interesting when you look at yeah, just the way that people are treated throughout throughout time what happens when a person is labeled a monster versus a supernatural being being labeled a monster.
1: That's a really interesting perspective. I always think about it. I've I've never thought about it in in those terms as, as like kind of that that juxtaposition that you described now. Um and I've always kind of thought about it in terms of the element of surprise and you know the the that kind of fear of the unknown and expectation. So if you go into a fantastical world um as you were talking about Godzilla earlier, um, you have a certain expectation that there might be something that comes along that um, that you don't you, you won't fully know what that is and you won't be able to categorize it in a certain way, but you still have some, a certain level of expectation that it's not something that would necessarily exist in the world as we know it. But still, it can it can have elements of horror because you can't predefine that for yourself mm-hmm. because you don't live in that fantastical world. So
2: right, um, it's kind of like the violation of a contract.
1: Exactly. Do you so have I, a favorite monster?
2: Oh yeah. Oh, favorite. I mean. I love a good vampire. I really, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know? (laughs) Um, And, I mean, I grew up as a huge Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan, so that's just, like, very, very dear to my heart. And I would love to write a vampire novel one day. I've been really interested lately in that there's more discussion about, um, you know, well, okay, so... To kind of broaden this a little bit, one of the things I love about monsters in general is that they're metaphors, right? Like, almost every monster represents something real that's going on in the world that we live in. So the stories we tell are told for a reason, often as cautionary tales or as ways to explain things we don't have explanations for, or as a way of othering a group of people, what have you. And so, you know, for something like Vampires... They have been legends for so long in so many different contexts that they've meant a lot of different things. They've served as many different metaphors. We've got the sparkly Twilight vampires, which were essentially like a a Mormon abstinence allegory. And then before that, uh, vampires were used to uh, explain tuberculosis, when people would be wasting away, coughing up blood, pale you know, one of the main explanations for this was was vampirism, which is where you got the New England vampire hysteria of the 1800s, where people would be digging up their family members and like turning their hearts into powders and drinking them. Okay, I didn't know about that. Oh, that's yeah, that's a worthwhile little tidbit. Okay, so let me tell you really quick. Mercy Brown uh, was a, I think she was an exeter rhode island she was a young woman whose family was one by one being picked off by tuberculosis she went as well her mother and i believe one of her sisters went before her her brother got sick Two, and their dad was freaking out and was like, We've got to figure out how to fix this. Now, this was way too late for any sort of supernatural assumptions to be made. It was in, I believe, the late 1800s, but this kind of flum flam man came through town and convinced this grieving father that one deceased member of his family must be a vampire and had been coming back to suck the life force out of the remaining members and had now set their sights on his son. And the only thing to be done was to exhume those who had already been buried and see who hadn't decayed. Clearly. Clearly, yeah. That's the only reasonable option. And so kind of at his wits end, the father's like, okay, let's do it. And so they dug the deceased family members up. And, you know, the mother had properly decayed. I think, I think it was another sister had properly decayed. And then Mercy Brown, she had died in the winter. It was still winter. She was frozen. She had not decayed at all. Shocking. And so, uh, in order, so they were like, that's the vampire. And the only way to save your son is if you cut out her heart, burn it, put it in a tincture and have your son drink it. And he did. And he still died of tuberculosis, but, uh, the news traveled fast and it became a whole new England trend. So that's fun. Holy crap. (laughs) The more, you know, (laughs) but yeah, so that's, you know, vampires, in that context, was a whole thing. I and can't believe
0: you're swerving already. My mouth is still open. <laughs> this is just like
2: my daily life, you know. And I do want to like talk like 1% about that too. One percent woman, ninety nine percent cursed facts. <laughs> <laughs> yes just yes <laughs> I'll let you guys take a moment to process mm-hmm. that before I, I move on to more vampire content no okay move on I'm to very happy to hear content. the blue content exactly yes yes
0: <laughs> well, I had okay. no idea
2: the final thing I was going to say about it was something that I've been seeing discussed more which I find really interesting and I actually hadn't been aware of uh, until about a year ago was that vampire lore was also used as an anti-semitic propaganda tool to put forth the idea of blood label where essentially jews were believed to be draining the blood and drinking the blood of christian children and that is something that jews have been accused of for thousands of years so vampire lore who are often very jewish coded in the way that they are like physically portrayed and in this practice of being afraid of christian iconography You know, holy water and crosses harms them. They have this association with the devil, which Jews were always associated with the devil in sort of Christian propaganda. And they were drinking blood, as Jews were accused of doing. So I think think it's really interesting that that is something that I've seen start to get unpacked a little bit more. And yeah, just the way that these monsters can shape shift in order to survive in each new generation's need to find an other, or to find an explanation. It's almost like a virus surviving or something, the way that these folktales manage to adapt for each new fear of each new generation.
1: That's my vampire spiel. I'm obsessed with your vampire spiel.
0: Yeah, I I just feel like you're our people. We're both like kind of like spooky ladies and, um, you know, 99% cursed facts is like, you know, great. In some contexts. <laughs> In this context for sure. Are I'm there, like a little th- unbearable at
2: parties, but on podcasts I do well. You're just well, going to the wrong parties, I think. Yeah,
0: that's Absolutely. true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Come to one of ours. It'll be great. I had a um for my birthday. Um, and I think your birthday is like around the same time as mine. I'm a Halloween baby. Wait, um, when's your birthday? On I'm, Halloween uh, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I'm October twenty-eighth. Yeah, Spanky yeah. Oh, so. Yeah. So I, I had a casual witch party and I made everyone become like they had to be a witch if they were going to come. So anyway, Perfect. that would have been a good party for you, I think.
2: That sounds great. I saw this TikTok about a an ice cream shop in Missouri that is making all they sell are ice cream sandwiches. And each of their ice cream sandwiches is based on a different witch and they made a Bellatine Yaga ice cream sandwich. Yeah. Oh my god. I lost my mind. Oh. <laughs> For the listeners who have not read Thistlefoot, uh Bellatine Yaga is one of the characters in the book that I wrote with my human brain. That now where is there also is this, an ice cream um, sandwich? Where is this ice cream shop? I think it's in it's in like St. Louis, Missouri or something. We have a we have a new place to go,
0: so, Courtney. Yeah, I think we we have to go. Yes. Absolutely. Make a pilgrimage. Yes, well, and um I feel like um you know I have this problem where every time I sit down to write something, I'm gonna tell myself I'm not gonna write another witch and <laughs> I sit down and I'm like, you know, 20,000 words deep, I'm like, she's a witch like <laughs> <laughs> look, you can't control them. If yeah. they want to make themselves known, they will. They will. Yes. Uh, one for my enemy came out today um mm. Olivie e. Blake. she has a, a Baba Yaga figurehead i don't know i think it's more of a title in hers um and it's like romeo and juliet style like witches feuding so that's
2: great (laughs) yeah anyway it's it's the time for witches i think there have been a whole lot of them coming out it's been really interesting because when i was writing thistlefoot like witches were not quite trending yet Mm. And then all of a sudden the book came out And like literally the same week Thistlefoot came out Multiple other Baba Yaga books also came out And there really hadn't been anything written on Baba Yaga in quite a long time mm. So it was, yeah, this something was in the air
0: I always think that's incredible, though, because I had I have a question about, like, what it is, do you think, about retellings and, like, things that have uh, maybe these archetypes that, you know, kind of steep into human consciousness? Like, what do you think it is that just has us all in a chokehold, you know, particularly about Baba Yaga and witches, but, like, anything?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, sort of like we were talking about earlier, where folklore has this adaptability, monsters have this adaptability, all folklore in general, really, where what makes a folktale or a particular archetype survive and survive and survive is its ability to adapt to new times, places, and peoples. And so the ones that make it this far are the ones that are incredibly adaptable. And Mm -hmm. when it comes to specifically the Baba Yaga and witch resurgence, as well as this kind of resurgence of a love of the fairy tale that we're seeing right now. I think there's actually something really interesting and specific going on. I've got a little spiel for this. Maybe I actually talked. I think I may have talked about this at the reading that you were at, because I was a little obsessed with it at the time then. But if you look at the last time that this kind of romantic fairy tale-esque trendiness was really taking hold i would argue that was it was during like the romantic period in poetry and art and the romantic period came right on the coattails of um the french revolution of the enlightenment period of all of this time that was both incredibly violent and uncertain as well as very dedicated to like specifically Concrete wit, intellect, and science. So it was a time with very little whimsy and a lot of fear. And in retaliation of that, the romantic poets were like, hey, this is scary. We would just like to feel something sort of soft for a little while. We would like to remind ourselves that there's beauty in the world in the midst of all of this suffering. And right now, I think, is a time when we are also experiencing an abnormal amount of fear, suffering, and uncertainty globally. And so it only makes sense that there would be this real desire in people to start reaching for things that have a little bit more magic in them, have a little bit more whimsy in them, in order to restore some softness to their everyday life. And I also think with something like Baba Yaga specifically, we have this like cottagecore trend, right? This idea of People yearning to like run off to the forest and live in a little cabin. And Baba Yaga is just the example of living that life of being like an old woman left alone in the woods with your herbs and your house. And that too, you know, on the surface can seem very twee and very quaint. But if you look at why culturally we've come to that place, it's kind of the opposite in that we are in this stage of late capitalism, of incredible disease, of political uncertainty and violence. And so there's a real uh, fear that we're going to A, be forced to return to nature uh, if society collapses. People are like, better learn to forage because who knows what's next, as well as just A fear and a desire to step away from this incredible claustrophobia of like urban capitalism and disease. And so what would be more appealing than a figure like Baba Yaga who exists outside of all that?
0: Yeah, I um I'm so curious then because it, it really feels like you have thought so much about this and you know and I'm wondering right now in your projects and what you're working on, do you feel like any of this kind of steeping into your own storytelling methods now? It sounds like subconsciously, maybe with thistle footage in.
2: So I've always worked in the realm of metaphor and I've always drawn from folklore. It, it it's always been my most natural language. I studied folklore in college folklore ethnology is like an academic realm that I know a lot about. And so it's very much just a language I speak through. So yeah, I think for me personally, supernatural folklore has always been the lens through which I interpreted human experience. So it's very interesting to me that now it's becoming a more almost mainstream way of interpreting culture. Uh, Though, you know, the thing with folklore is that it's the lore of the folk, like it's, it's the language mm. that people speak. And, you know, memes are folklore. Internet culture is folklore. It's all the same thing. And there's this idea that folklore is this antiquated concept that's making a comeback. And that's not true. It's, it's always developing and it's always kind of transpiring around us. But yeah, everything I write is a little spooky. Do you have a, a favorite folktale? I well, I love Little Red Riding Hood, which is a fairy tale, not a folktale. Little Red Riding Hood, I think, is my favorite fairy tale because I always I love any fairy tale my my, or my favorite category of folklore and fairy tale are when a supernatural story is being used to talk about something that someone has decided is too taboo to talk about directly Mm -hmm. so in Little Red Riding Hood of course it's this sexual allegory It's this warning that mothers would tell to their children about like messing around with enticing rakish men um, and potentially becoming devoured. I love any time that a parent was clearly too embarrassed to tell their children just not to sleep around. And so instead are like, let me come up with this incredibly elaborate supernatural story in order to like get the point across, but not have to like embarrass myself in doing so. (laughs) I feel like people still do that, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing with all of this is it's it's kind of a universal human instinct to tell stories like this.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah,
2: I love Little Red Riding Hood because it's it's deep in the forest. The visuals of it are really amazing and it has this like really dangerous sexiness to it. It's fun. Also, I love the musical Into the Woods and I always thought I would make a really good Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, never had the chance. And now I think I'm too old. But, you know, the ones that got away.
0: <laughs> oh, no, it's never, never too late. I, I love that musical, too. It's so good. It's it's the best. It's my fate. <laughs> what do you think about the movie? Terrible. Absolutely.
2: Okay. This is my opinion about the movie. I think they made for one don't let James Corden touch anything ever. I still think he must have some sort of like terrible blackmail over the entire entertainment industry and that's why he's like been allowed in as many things as he is. But besides that, I think the casting was deranged in that they cast actual children as Jack and Red. And both Jack's song and Red's song are stories of sexual awakening. Mm. So to cast literal children in those roles is... For one, very gross, and two, completely missing the point of those characters and their roles in the story. I feel like you should
0: have been involved in the production of this movie. Thanks, you want to? You should give him a call. I, um. you know, <laughs> I, you just add it to like your CV or whatever, and I'll I'll be a reference for <laughs> just you. Just pretend I was in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not going to take credit for that movie. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, it, um, you can fix it though. That'll be good. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) um i do want to um talk about how you are a researcher on the podcast lore and Mm -hmm. i just want to um because when we talked before i think you like you had maybe already written thistlefoot when you had gotten that position is that right Mm -hmm. it is yeah okay Mm -hmm. Oh, um. so are you working on anything new now, like in terms of like your your writing? Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, being 99% curse facts and maybe lore's um, hand in that too? how how that's impacted your storytelling?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely a bit of a chicken and the egg situation where I certainly got the job at lore because I was already like significantly full of cursed facts, though. I will say I did get my job at lore in a roundabout way through a tinder date, which I find very funny. (laughs) Um, But also because it's like the perfect job for me. Uh, So yeah, I I research for them and I also write for them. So some of the lore episodes are researched and written by me, um, which is really fun to be able to kind of go from the start to finish of like pitching an idea, doing all the research, writing the whole episode. And then Aaron goes into the studio and records it. And I just get to like be part of that whole process. One of the things that, is different now that I've been working on lore versus when I was writing Thistlefoot before being on the lore team is I know how to research much better now. <laughs> Thistlefoot took an immense amount of research in order to be able to pull it off because large chunks of the book take place in a Jewish ghetto in the year 1919 in the months leading up to a pogrom. And it was based on an actual shtetl that my family came from back in that same time period. And I really wanted to get the details right. So I did an immense amount of research, but I didn't I had never been trained in a streamlined researching process. So I was just kind of making it up and it wasn't efficient in the way that I can be now. Um, So one of the things that's really changed that I'm really excited about as I'm working on new projects is I really know how to research. Like effectively and in this really laser-specific way, which feels really satisfying and exciting to have really recognizably grown my skill in that realm. Lore is great in that every single week I research a new subject. So every week I am full of exponentially more cursed information. (laughs) So, you know, one week I'll be like, reading about the worst hot air balloon disaster that ever happened in French history. And then another week, I'll be learning about something called Star Slime. And then another week, I'll be learning about, like, Joan of Arc's right-hand man who happened to be a child cannibal. And it's just, it's all over the map, y'all. And it's all in here now. By in here, I mean deep (laughs) lodged within my soul. Um, Part of your DNA now. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've been altered on a genetic level. And what's cool about it, too, is that it is, you know, there is a lot of crossover, right? In between the work I do for Lore and just my general interests and the work I do as an author, I feel like the projects i'm working on now so i I just turned in this week my edits for my next book which will be out uh in the spring or late winter early spring of 2024 and that is a short fiction collection which are all sort of weird magical realism modern fairy tale type stories which i also wrote before i started working on lore but my next novel will be a new england gothic of sorts and i'm not sure if actual Facts that I learned from lore will work their way into that, but definitely the research method, definitely some of the the vibes. And also every time I work on an episode, I like find all these ideas for amazing stories. So there's definitely like books for the future brewing from some of the incredible historical realms that I've been dwelling in for lore.
1: So I, um, I will forever be a researcher at heart, and I just latched onto like with passion as you were talking about how you kind of honed in on your own research process. Do you have any like I know top three tips that you could share about how you how your researching has changed?
2: Um, So working for Lore Aaron Mankey has developed this really efficient streamlined research process for every single episode where every episode on lore is a four act structure there is an introduction then there are is this basically there's an introduction where we're kind of zoomed out on a topic almost like a bird's eye view And then, or that's Act 1 And then Act 2 is you zoom in closer and more specific on that topic And Act 3 is one specific story in that topic And then Act 4, or the epilogue, is an adjacent but similar topic So, for example, the very first episode I ever did uh, for Lore Was on Lake Lanier in Georgia And it's this lake where there's just been an immense number of drownings As well as a number of sort of alleged hauntings taking place there And so for Act 1 with that I did an overarching scope of the history of the lake From like when it was carved out by glacial migration To the uh, creation of the reservoir to the present day And that's this, you know, huge bird's eye view So for researching, that would be like where you start It's like a big sweep of your topic Then for act two, I moved in more closely To just looking at drownings that have taken place in this lake Um, And so for that, I'm like searching through newspapers.com archives, reading obituaries from the early 1900s. Really fun kind of detective work sleuthing. And you know, with that, my story is getting more focused because the research is getting more focused. With Act Three, I was focusing on one specific drowning that happened that ended up causing some ghost stories in the area. And so then you get that's the meat of your story, right? You're going right down into an actual concrete narrative. But because you've done all of this larger work before it, all of this broader work, that really concrete specific narrative has all of this contextual underpinning to it. And so that is what I've found to be really really valuable in researching for, you know, a narrative project, for any kind of historical fiction that I might be working on is, you know, start with these broad sweeps and then get narrower and narrower and narrower. And by doing a broad sweep, you're going to find the information that interests you the most that you would then want to get narrower on. And so that that zeroing in process I've found to be really, really valuable.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I feel like the the research phase of any start of any new project can be both exciting and overwhelming. And so it's always interesting to me to hear how other people approach it and what I can sort of learn from from your processor totally
2: yeah and it, it is a very overwhelming thing because there's infinite information you could always include more i guess and so i think the most valuable thing you can do to research for something is to be as selectively specific as possible like for, when i was researching for thistlefoot i love little details. I love getting little details right. So for example, this house on chicken legs that Baba Yaga inhabits, in my version of the story, it is from this small Jewish shtetl, which in the traditional Eastern European folklore, it is not. Um, But in my version, it is. And so I wanted the house to architecturally match what would exist in these shtetls. So I did all this research on what these houses looked like. Not only did I look at photographs, but I read did, like first person documents of people describing the interiors of the homes they grew up in. I actually contacted a carpenter friend of mine who was able to discern that the buildings in those spaces would not have been built with metal joinery, but would have been built entirely with wooden joinery because the metal pieces would have been too expensive for those regions. And so it was like that level of detail, I find almost to be the most valuable kind of research you can do, because that's what makes something real. That's what takes a story that otherwise is as fantastical as you want it to be and weights it down with something earthen and real and literal and concrete.
0: Do you have any recommendations like like JSTOR, for example, you know, things like that for people to go to if they're looking at writing um, anything based in history or history adjacent?
2: JSTOR is great. Um, newspapers.com is great. And, you know, I think, for me, photographs are the most valuable of all. Because in a photograph, in a historical photograph, you can gain so much information. You can get the textures of the fabrics that people are wearing. You can see the plants that are growing in that area. You can see the hairstyles that people are wearing. There's all these little details that you would have to really, really hunt for uh, if you were trying to find it in some sort of academic article that in just Just like one photograph of a family is entirely
0: illuminated. So are you researching vampires right now?
2: I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not writing a vampire novel at the moment. (laughs) Um, I just know I will one day. (laughs)
0: That's fair. Um,
2: Yeah, no, right (laughs) now I'm researching, yeah, New England gothic tropes. Mm. And the the novel that I'm gearing up to start is really based in my hometown and in local history and folklore. So I'm doing a lot of my favorite kind of research, which is like showing up at the historical society unannounced and demanding. I get to look through all of their filing cabinets.
0: (laughs) That's amazing.
2: (laughs) It's great. There's like two old ladies in there and all they do is shit talk people in the town. And I just sit there, like paging through, looking for photographs of like the movie theaters burning down. It's great.
0: <laughs> oh my! And then you get the the local town Goss. So oh yeah, I was about to they, say, do you like have side
2: notes for for dialogue and <laughs> <Yeah, exactly. laughs> like backstory? <laughs> what was fun about like researching for Thistlefoot was I like. Isaac and Bellatine's journey uh who those are the protagonists of Thistlefoot Isaac and Bellatine they're two siblings Jewish American siblings uh in the modern day in America and throughout the book they're learning about their ancestral history which just so happens to be uh the history of Baba Yaga in this shtetl In 1919, uh, who ends up being their twice great-grandmother. And like I mentioned earlier, their whole story is based on my family's immigration story um, and what happened in the shtetl that my great-grandmother immigrated from. And it was a story I didn't know that much about before I started working on this project. So as Isaac and Bellatine learned about their history, I, in tandem, learned about my history. So I think there's something really fun about the research project when you are learning things in time with your kids characters um and one of the things in this new project that i'm working on is my my protagonist is also sleuthing around the town for information about the past and so i may well have her like sneak into the historical society and go through the filing cabinets and i'll have all the little details that she would need to know because i've done it (laughs) which I think is so much more valuable than just Googling everything, you know? Because yeah. you get, it's sort of like my research is twofold. My research is the information I'm finding, but also my research is, I'm researching the process of what it is to research so that my character can do that correctly too.
1: I think it's so interesting how there's a certain fluidity when we as the the storytellers kind of move between the worlds of our characters and our own world and how all of that gets interwoven. And I, I had a question which... um. I wanted to ask you if you could spend a day with one of your own characters, who would it be and where would you take them? Oh my
2: gosh. That's a good question. (laughs) Um, oof. I mean, I'm such a sucker for like a scampy little train hopper. So I would spend a day with Isaac. I know I shouldn't. I know it's bad for me, but I would do it anyway. (laughs) And... I don't know. We would probably just go out dancing. I, But <laughs> but I know I'm trying to be better about that sort of thing. So maybe I would, yeah, either Isaac or Bellatine for sure, because I just, they're my buds. But yeah, I would probably be Isaac. He's more fun than Bellatine. Bellatine's like a better person, but she's kind of a killjoy. Isaac is a little shit, but he's a lot of fun. So mm. that's usually, yeah, that's what I would do. I, like I would her. probably ask him to take me... To hop a train. But here's the thing is like (laughs) I I I've gotten these comments which I find very, very funny. On I know you're not supposed to read your Goodreads reviews. I don't care. I read all my Goodreads reviews. Like, come on, what am I gonna do? Just pretend that's not there? No. So I read all my Goodreads reviews and I love it. And there's this comment that's come up a few times that just tickles the hell out of me where people will be like you know I love this book but you know some of these characters they they're like on cell phones but they're hopping trains and singing blues songs and like talking like they're in the 1930s these people would never exist today and I'm like oh sweetheart like the I base those on my friend like those are my actual friends I'm describing Uh, like Every time I needed to know where Isaac and Benji would like hop a train, I called my ex-boyfriend, the train hopper who plays the blues, and asked him where they would get on that train. <laughs> I write what I know. And all the characters, I guess the, the way this is relevant to your question is in a way I hang out with the characters in my books all the time. Um, not the literal people, but the, the cultures that my characters exist in are the cultures that I exist in. I'm just writing about my friends and and my communities and the people that I know. So,
0: yeah, I love that. And I love how you were like I'm trying to be better about this and like not train hopping with and dancing. As Look, much. I'm a sucker
2: for the for like a rakish train hopper boy. I can't help myself. <laughs> they're charming but they're bad news. Are they though? Not all. I was like oh, no. <laughs>
0: I mean, I I just hearing that, I'm, I'm just like, yeah, sign me up. I think it's great.
2: But I do really uh, love those comments where people are like, they could never exist. Like, who are these blessed beings who've never met a crust punk in their life? Like, what charmed existence have they been leading?
0: <laughs> you need to have like a little event where like you can invite all those people. An educational um, yeah, event? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a a community service sense. event. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You can invite those those uh, those two
0: old ladies and just have them sort of gather the gossip and then Absolutely. yeah I think that's perfect. Um, Gabby, I I do think that we need to pay attention to our final two questions. But do you have anything that's just like no? You know, let's jump in. I I did have hot. one more question, but um, oh, we'll ask it. Okay, I think ask it. All ask right, it. the time is now. <laughs> <laughs> the time is now.
1: I love your prose. I think it's so immersive, so poetic. And I was curious if that's something that sort of innately part of the beginning stages of your storytelling process or when you're dreaming up story what sort of tendrils are unfurling for you as it goes is it are you kind of focusing on character first settings vibes um is all of that voice that we get in thistleford something that is there from the beginning or do you kind of layer it in as you go
2: i love that question yeah that's fantastic um It's definitely there from the beginning. That's what's there from the beginning the most. Uh, You know, I started as a poet. And so for me, what is most natural is that that lyrical storytelling voice. Um, When I first started Thistlefoot, what I knew from the very beginning was how Baba Yaga's story ended. And that was what drove the entire book i didn't know much else about what happened but i knew that I, I and i guess i had my craft i had my voice and so yeah what was a struggle for me was plot and character plot and character was something i had to really actively work on because i was not familiar with it really i was not it was not natural to me because this is this was the first novel i ever attempted to write i had not been working in fiction before this and so i i had always been working in metaphor as a poet. I'd been working in folklore based work so that I was very familiar with and narrative lyrical poetry had been my mode for a very long time. So yeah, all of that comes first and I'm very much not one of those writers who like pukes out a really rough first draft and then goes back in and does most of the most of the voice polishing. In edits, I tinker, basically I write fiction like a poet. So it's very, very, very slow. And I will spend an immense amount of time on every single sentence before I move on to the next sentence, just tinkering until I find exactly the right word before moving on to the next. Um, I also kind of mutter to myself as I write. So, you know, it lends itself really naturally to being read aloud because I'm almost writing it aloud. And so there's a certain like oral impact that goes into the writing process. And then the things that ended up needing more tinkering later on were essentially fleshing out some of the plot and character things that were missing before. Uh, but yeah, the, the actual vibes and tone and writing style, that's what's most concrete for me and what always comes first.
1: I love that because I feel like I feel like that's something you can feel in the story. And that's why I was so curious about it.
2: Cool. I'm glad. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's like the one thing I'm I'm confident about, I guess. You know, with Thistlefoot, I really felt like I didn't know what I was doing because it was my first novel and I was just kind of trusting the process. And the one thing that I do feel like I'm able to trust is I know, I know my voice and my craft and when, when it comes to like a linguistic level and like, a, poetic, a level of poeticism that I like I love purple prose It's like a very over-the-top style of writing And it's not for everyone But I love over des- overly descriptive purple writing And so I know that I can give myself permission to do that And I'll enjoy it Even when I don't know, like What should this person's entire personality and motive be? Who knows? But I can sure describe a chair well <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's a good talent to have. It is. is. Not everybody can describe a chair. So,
0: (laughs) I'm also really glad we uh, decided to make some space for that question because that was fantastic. Thank you. All right, Gabby, take it away. Right, we're gonna read what your story beast
1: is, and you said my story beast is a shape shifting magpie sneaking into a party she was not invited to. I forgot
0: (laughs) that. It is so fun. I bet she hopped a train on the way there. Okay.
1: Two things in that, uh, the shape-shifting I want to talk about and, uh, what kind of party this is. So what, what is your, uh, what is your magpie shape-shifting into?
2: She's shape-shifting between like a teenage girl and a magpie. It's like a magpie shape-shifting into kind of like a troublemaker teenage girl who gets like detention a lot. Okay. I like that. <laughs> and, uh,
0: and what sort of party is this?
2: It's like, again, we're in like a teen magpie setting. It's like someone's parents went away for the weekend and there's going to be a lot of spin the bottle.
0: Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now um, our final question is what is your favorite snack? What did I write? Wait, what? Oh, am I
2: guessing? What I wrote? Oh, no, you can. <laughs> this is so funny, this question,
1: <laughs> because I feel like we we never clarify. And so some people mm-hmm. sometimes think they have to say what they wrote. But like your snack can change. Yeah. Um, your favorite snack can change. What, what, what you snacking
0: what on we, lately? Yeah.
2: What am I snacking that? on lately? Oh, OK. Well, one of my evergreen snacks, which I might put, I love Pocky, like the chocolate dipped Pocky. That's a really great snack. Um, I also love Pirate Booty. That's a great snack. Recently, I discovered the, uh, it's like smart food, but it's bit cheddar popcorn so it's like it's it's l- like smart food it's the same thing where it's like popcorn but it's covered in powdered cheese but it's like cabbage cheddar cheese powder and it's really good also did you guys know that smart food cheese and the cheese on annie shells is the same cheese i didn't created- know any Both of this brands I don't- were created by the same lady who just wanted know any perfect of these cheese for everything <laughs> yeah that's amazing Nero. um yeah those are good snacks. Yeah, I'll I'll eat any pastry. I have a very like my diet is mostly uh, pastry at this point in my life. I I know none of
1: these snacks. Are they like are they American?
0: I think they yeah. must be. Yeah. Well, talkie's
2: Japanese, but the rest are American. I mean, cake is universal. I feel like you know cake.
0: I know cake. She does know <laughs> cake. She definitely knows cake. I'm sure you guys have pastries. <laughs> We have pastry. <laughs> well, I think we've we've done our our due diligence on the snacks. Uh, this has been amazing, Jen Rose. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us and talk about vampires and like hot train hopping men. I don't know all of that. They're out
2: there, look I'll out! S- I know, I know.
0: <laughs> you're in the Goodreads. You just need to look
2: harder, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you're missing out on a good time. <laughs>